If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And as you turn there, we're entering a time in the study of Mark. Um, Aaron has been in the book of 1 Peter. And so coming here, thought we could spend a little time highlighting um, one of the healings of Jesus, just as a reminder of who Christ is and what he can accomplish in the life of the individual and in the life of the church as a whole. And I thought it would just be a good reminder and a warm renewal in a cold season. So as we turn here, I will read from chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 20, and then we'll pray and enter our time in the Word together. So follow along with me in chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Mark. As it reads, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he, had not, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd. Uh, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Please pray with me. Father, at this time we ask you to teach us from your word. We ask you to make plain truths, plain to our hearts, to make real truth real to our hearts that we might live in light of them. Lord, we need your spirit to do this. We need your spirit to understand. We need your spirit to live rightly. And we pray that by your spirit's illumination, you would give us wisdom from above, that we would look more like Christ today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. And Lord, we pray that your word would humble us now and help us to enjoy the sweetness of who Christ is and what he offers. In Christ's name, amen. So as we look at our passage today, we see Jesus performing a healing. And I want to give you a little bit of background of how we come to this point in the story of Mark, because we haven't been in Mark. And so if you just were to turn back to chapter 4, and you don't need to go there, but just to give you an overview, Jesus has just finished calming a great storm. And before that, he was teaching on a shore side. 
And so Jesus was teaching on the shore, and he was teaching about the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom of God that comes with the coming of Christ, that comes with the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is outside all day in the elements, and he's out in the wind or the rain or the sunshine, whatever the weather was, Jesus has been out all day trying to teach people about himself, conveying the truth of the scriptures, that they might know who he is as he makes his way to the cross. And the book of Mark is a very short gospel account. It's only several chapters in length compared to 28 chapters in the book of Matthew and many chapters in the book of Luke. And as you look at this, Mark is getting to one point, and that's that the kingdom has come with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is marching towards the cross. And as he's making his direction there, Jesus gets into a boat after a lengthy amount of time, all day teaching on a seashore. And he gets into a boat, and he's sleeping because he's exhausted and he's worn. And even then, when he's getting some rest before he reaches the next shoreline, he's beginning his next mission. He's fulfilling the next step that God has prepared for him to fulfill as he makes his way to the cross. And his disciples wake him, and they're afraid and they're terrified, and they're fearful of death as a storm is getting ready to overtake the boat that they're in. And Jesus awakes and he exercises his dominion and his authority over the wind and the, and the rain and over the waves. And he gives peace to the disciples. And he gives them reason to believe that he is the very son of God, that he is God himself, that he is one of the Trinity, and that he is here to bring order out of chaos and that he is here to bring, bring peace to mankind. And it's following this scene, following the teaching of Christ and then the calming of the storm, that we see Jesus getting out of the boat and stepping onto a seashore. That he's crossed the sea and immediately he's confronted with another work that he is to fulfill to point others to himself. That he is to teach others that he is very God of very God and that we are to believe in him as one who brings healing for mankind. One who brings peace for those who have no peace. And so with that context, I want you to look with me today at the fact that Jesus heals Jesus is a Christ, he's a savior, he's a Messiah who brings healing to those who need healing. He brings healing to the sick and the lost and the afflicted. And as we look at this, you'll see that Jesus heals in three ways. Jesus heals the sick. He heals the needy, the afflicted, the sick. Jesus heals with authority. What he commands to happen, happens. And lastly, Jesus heals for his own glory. He heals with a purpose. He heals with intent. And to be swept up in that purpose and that intent and that realization is to our benefit. And as we look here today, I want you to understand it's important for us to know that Jesus heals. And he heals. And it's important for us to understand that because every man needs the healing of Christ. Every man, every woman, every child, every elderly person needs the healing that's offered in Christ. And so as we look at that truth today, we'll begin by looking at the fact that Jesus does heal the sick. He does have compassion on the needy. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, it says that the man that confronted Jesus, that he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the man wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles. No one had strength to subdue him. And as you look at this, if you had to think of a word to encapsulate the state of the condition of this man, I would offer you the word hopeless. I would offer you the word despair. I would offer you the word afflicted. I would offer you the word alone to describe this man. Not just the spiritual condition of this man, but the physical condition of this man. A man carrying a burden, an affliction that other people can't empathize with by experience. 
but that he truly, care, that he truly carries, that he truly cries out about. And when you look at this, this man is afflicted in a very unique way. But look at the response of the people around him in his community. Look at the people, whether they're believers or just citizens that share the same town with him in verse 4. It says that they bound him with shackles and chains, and he wrenched them apart. The best remedy that mankind had to offer an afflicted man, a man spiritually distraught, a man spiritually without a savior, a man in need of a savior, but a man who also had real physical, immediate pains and sufferings, the best remedy that mankind had to offer him, shackles and chains. And eventually this man, whether by his own choice or by force of the community, suffered on his own, alone, without solution to his need, until Christ comes on the scene. You see, no solution that the world offers can compare with what Christ offers. And God in his goodness may offer you a pharmaceutical solution to a need, and God by his grace may provide that. He may provide you counseling that you need. He may provide you fellowship and company and friendship that you need to overcome obstacles in your life. But those solutions are from God. But they are not the same as spiritual solutions, spiritual healing to separation from God. That is something that Christ offers to this man. And I'd ask you, who is it that Christ came to save? Did Christ come to save people who are not sick, who are not afflicted, who are not in need? Or did Christ say that he came to heal the sick and the needy and the afflicted? The book of Luke in chapter 15 tells us that Christ came to seek and save the lost. And the lies can be encapsulated by understanding that there are people who know that they have a need. They know that they have a need. And so my question to you is, do you have a need? Do you confess your need, that you need a Savior, that you were born estranged from God, born an enemy of God, born in need of a Savior, to fix what you couldn't fix for yourself? And see, this man has an advantage, because although he's afflicted and demon-possessed, his need is plain. There's not a person in his community who did not know that this man was alone and isolated and afflicted. He has the advantage of not being able to hide what is wrong with him. And so therefore, he has no reason not to call on a Savior, no reason not to accept that which is offered in Christ, no reason not to bow before a Savior when a Savior is offered. But for those of us who live organized, clean, tidy lives, that from the outside look like there's no problems in our family, that from the outside look like we have no financial troubles, that from the outside look like we have no marital problems, that from the outside look like we're not carrying fatigue and disease and problems, that requires extra obstacle to be overcome because humility is required to admit that you have a need. Humility is required to call upon a Savior. But Christ is really available to people with those needs as well. But if we fear man instead of God, we might say that everything is fine. We might get lost in keeping up with the Joneses. Many of you probably receive Christmas cards. Many of you probably receive Christmas letters. How many of those tempt you to share only what's great about your family, only what's good. And it is a season of thanksgiving. It is a season to share that which, is God, that, that which God has done in your life to give him thanks for. But is it not also an opportunity to confess that God is sustaining us through substantial trial to call upon him in our need? I would imagine that each of us have needs in our lives that most of the congregation does not know about intimately. And as Aaron urges us Sunday after Sunday, Share your needs with others in the congregation. 
Not in a way that every time someone speaks with you, you're just saying the worst about your life over and over, that you're always complaining, but that you're truly confessing that you have a need of a Savior. You have a need of a Christ who God has provided to you, and we take joy in that Savior. And as we look here, look at the next point. Not only that Jesus heals the sick, but that Jesus heals with authority. Jesus heals with authority. That is to say that Jesus, when he commands something, it comes to pass. I want you to imagine that there's a doctor, a famous doctor, and this doctor is known for always healing whoever approaches him for a cure. If that doctor worked for a hospital, don't you think that if a doctor could guarantee you a cure, no matter what your ailment, no matter what your sickness, no matter what your need, that there wouldn't be a line out the door of that hospital, and that you would be willing to pay whatever the cost to guarantee that you could be cured of whatever is ailing you? Could you imagine a doctor like that? Maybe you've heard of doctors that offer those kind of remedies. A doctor that might even put on the table, he'll say, I guarantee if you come and spend time with me, I can improve your situation. Don't you know people who have paid top dollar, that have emptied their bank accounts, to find a physical solution, to find a solution to the problems that they have in their lives? But we know that they don't solve ultimate problems that they can't stop the greatest problem of man aside from separation from God, which is death itself. I've never met a doctor who can keep someone from dying in the end. They might be able to delay it, but they can't stop death. But that is very much exactly who Christ is. He is the great physician, the doctor, who offers a perfect solution to death, who remedies separation from God, who gives us the ability to live holy lives when we had no ability to do so before. Christ is a physician who gives us that which we need the most. And what does Christ say? He doesn't say that you can earn it. He doesn't say that you can clean up your lives enough to merit his saving, his healing. Instead, he says, come without money and come without price. He says, come and take the gospel. It's been paid for. He says, come and take me, your Savior. My blood has been offered for you already. Accept me as your Savior. And for those of you who have accepted that, we gather today in joy because we have been brought under the command of Christ, having been commanded to take his salvation, and been swept up in the joy of knowing that we've been healed and reconciled to God the Father. That is the wonder of the gospel, that what Jesus commands is really accomplished. Look at verse 7. When the demon falls before Christ, he recognizes immediately who Christ is. He refers to Christ as Son of the Most High God. Now, isn't it interesting that the enemies of God Divine powers of evil are able to attribute to God and to Jesus that which is really true about himself, to say that he is the son of the most high God. In essence, they're saying that Jesus is divine. What was it that the Sanhedrin, that the Pharisees and the scribes called Jesus a blasphemer for saying about himself? They called Jesus a blasphemer and they were willing to put him to death because Jesus claimed to be divine. That was one of the main reasons he was put to the cross. And yet what the demon tells us here immediately upon seeing Christ is that he recognizes that Jesus is divine. And he's not just divine like an angel. He is divine in the way that he has authority over the cosmos, that he's been granted authority on heaven and on earth. And the demon knows that whatever Christ commands, he has to obey. That's the kind of authority that our Savior has. So when you face afflictions, whether bodily or you face face spiritual afflictions, know that the Savior that you can go to, the Savior who has commanded your salvation, is the one who can carry out that which you need most. 
He is the best and only person who you should turn to and can turn to to bring remedy to whatever your needs are in your life. It does not guarantee that he will remove your affliction, but it does mean that if you were to ever have a solution in your life for the problems that you face, Christ is the first person that you should go to. And as we look at this here, look at verse 9. Look at the the grandness, the size of the affliction. Verse 9, the demon describes himself as legion, and he said, because we are many. And one thing that I want you to note, one application for your life, is that sin is rarely, if ever, alone whenever you find sin in your life, or you see sin in someone else's life. Sin is often accompanied by other sins. If you were to turn to a place like Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, you would see that Paul gives us a list of multiple sins that you might find in your life that you need to resist, that you need to put under the blade, that you need to put to death. And the reason he lists out multiple sins is because the sins often find themselves together. Greed and lust and envy Those kind of things find themselves grouped together. And so it's not shocking that it's not only one demon, but many demons. And Jesus tells multiple parables about how you might uh, do the work of trying to clean out your heart and preparing your heart to be acceptable before God. And then you don't pay attention to the upkeep of your heart and you let it fall into disrepair. And so the things that were in your heart come back even stronger than before and with more company of other sins than before. We need to be vigilant about the fact that one sin accompanies other sins. And so when you see multiple demons possessing this man, how many demons? Enough to occupy 2,000 pigs? Now there's nothing that guarantees that it was one demon per one pig, but imagine that it was 2,000 demons. 2,000 struggles, the weight of that many problems. Maybe several of you only have a handful of problems that take the priority of your mind that consume your thoughts before you go to bed, whether it's the needs of your children or the needs of your marriage or the needs of your finances or the needs of your family. Now imagine that multiplied by a thousand. This man was in need, plain, great need. But we see Christ answer his need, and if Christ can meet the need of this man, he can meet your need as well. And he offers that every day, every moment. But whenever you see that Jesus commands that the demons come out of the pig, that which he commands is accomplished. We see a discourse where Jesus is saying, come out, and then the conversation ensues. But the point is really more that whenever you see Jesus say, come out of the man, it's not that they could resist, but we're seeing from Mark's perspective that Jesus is willing that the demons come out of the man and it is accomplished. But we learn from the discourse between Jesus and the demon-possessed man who the demons are, the vastness of their power, the vastness of their opposition. Yet isn't it amazing that 2,000 demons collected cannot resist Christ and his command. They bow before him. They literally beg him not to make them suffer unnecessarily because the demons recognize the divinity, the authority of Christ. Are you ready day by day to recognize what the demons recognize instantly, that Christ is divine and he is powerful and he is ruling at the right hand of God the Father for your benefit. And that same powerful Christ and Messiah makes intercession for us. What a great truth to savor, to take joy in. And we see that Jesus heals with authority. We see that he heals the sick. But the third thing that I want you to see is that Jesus heals for his own glory. And as I say that, I don't want you to think that because Jesus heals for his own glory, he does not heal with compassion for the benefit of this man. Don't think that Jesus has to either choose 
his own glory or a desire to heal the man. It's that as Jesus heals for his own glory, as he does that which promotes those to others and others to look to God, that Jesus also sweeps up other people in healing and in compassion and restoration as they're swept into the purpose of Jesus proclaiming his own glory, proclaiming his purpose, accomplishing that which he was sent here to do. Think about it like this. When an employer hires an employee, they don't hire the employee because they're most concerned with contributing and uh, conveying wealth to that employee. The chief concern of any employer is not to make their employee wealthy. The chief concern of the employer is to accomplish the mission of the company. But as the company needs to accomplish their mission, they hire employees so they can accomplish that benefit. And as employees are brought into the company, that is when they receive the benefit of employment. That's when they receive health care. That's when they receive incomes. That's whenever they receive purpose and vocation and given direction and the opportunity to grow in responsibility. It's as you come into the purpose of the organization that you gain uh, all the benefits entitled and included with being that employee of that company. Likewise, it's when you're swept into the purpose of what Christ has come to accomplish that you receive the benefits of being associated with him. And so whenever Jesus heals this man, he heals this man into the benefits of sonship. He heals this man into the benefits of heavenly inheritance. And so whenever we see that Jesus heals for his own glory, that Christ is most concerned with his own glory is one of the greatest things that could be possibly true for this man because it's the reason that Jesus heals this man. And in Jesus healing you and bringing you to salvation, he receives glory for that. And both are accomplished. You receive compassion and you receive mercy and you receive forgiveness and you receive reconciliation to the Father. And all the while that is bringing Christ glory because God accomplished that which he promised to do. How wonderful and amazing the plan of salvation that God has for mankind. A plan that no man could have come up with, yet God did and amazes us and causes us to wonder and say how marvelous, how wonderful. And as we look here, see this, that God grants the bride, the church, to Christ. To Christ as part of his reward for his obedience. As part of his glorification of the Son. And that it's amazing that as Jesus heals this man, the very thing that's happening is that this man is now Christ forever. And as Christ is being given glory, as God gives the church to Christ, and as the church day by day, individual by individual, sick person and needy person and person needing healing by person needing healing, Christ is gaining glory day by day as God works out his plan of salvation. And it's forever. And this man, from the day that Christ heals him, today and tomorrow and forever, this man belongs to Christ. And the same is true for you as you belong to Christ as he has saved you that you belong to Christ forever. Today, in your suffering, you belong to Christ. Tomorrow, in your suffering, you belong to Christ. No matter how much you are afflicted for the glory of Christ, you belong to him forever. What a wonderful truth that often we forget and often we need reminded and often we need the word and fellowship to remind us that we are Christ forever. But as we look here, we also need to know that God sustains us in our suffering to point others to himself. God sustains us in suffering to point others to himself. So if you are suffering and you think, I can call out to Christ and he is guaranteed to heal me, Christ will ultimately heal everyone. He will ultimately remove suffering, ultimately remove sickness. But you may be assigned to suffer in this life. 
so that others might look to Christ. Because if there's no suffering in your life, then others might not believe that you need a Savior. Others might think that if you can do it on your own, they can do it on their own. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is that God rescues those in need. God sustains those in need. And so whenever you look at this, you see that God sustains others in suffering to point them to himself. Think about the vastness of the 2,000 demons inside of this man. Think about the legion of demons in this man. God did not allow this man to be killed by the presence of the demons that have possessed this man. Yet when they go into another organic being, when they go into other beings, they go into pigs, 2,000 pigs, the instant thing that happens is the pigs rush and kill themselves. That the overwhelming force of the presence of those demons and pigs drives them to death. Passage, But just think about the fact that the demons have the authority to kill the pigs. What kept them from killing the man that they possessed? God and God alone. Because God had a purpose of bringing himself glory by sustaining this man while he was possessed by the demons until Christ, the only solution for this man, came onto the scene in real time. And look at what happens as a result of it. So many people hear the truth about who Christ is and what authority he has and what he has come to accomplish because God freed this man at the time he did and at the way he did. And the, true, the truth of that might also apply to you as well that the way that God saved you is worth sharing because it will point others to Christ. That the suffering you're going through and God sustaining you even after salvation might point others to Christ as you share your needs with other people, both believers and unbelievers, so they might take heart that, wow, you have that need, yet here you are again today, yet there you are tomorrow. And at the grave and at the time of your death, you are able even then to take joy that God sustained you until the grave that you died well as a Christian because God took you to that point in faith. How wonderful that God is able to sustain us in that way. Now look at the two options here that are faced with the people and the reaction. Whenever you look at verses 17 and 18, it says, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And then in verse 18, As, the demon, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the demon-possessed man who had been freed begged Christ that he might be with him. Ladybug. He begged Christ that he might be with him. Look at the two different responses. You see that one group of people says, Christ, get away from me. And another person who's been saved by Christ, not the majority, but the minority, the man who has been freed by Christ says, I can't wait to be with you. I desire to be with you. Please let me be closer to you. Please let me be in your presence. These are the two options that are faced with someone when they're confronted with Christ. There is no middle ground. Either you desire Christ to be away, or you desire to be with him. You desire to be near to him. And we see this presented clearly to us. And even after we're saved, we can be tempted to say, we can be tempted to say that we don't want Christ too close, because that means we have to give up things. We don't want Christ to be so close that we're required to be generous, because that might interfere with our plans for retirement. We might say we don't want Christ to be too close because it means that we have to change our friendships. We don't want Christ to be too close because it might mean we have to be uncomfortable and we're driven to share the gospel with other people. We want Christ just close enough that we have his salvation, but we don't have to change our lives. But that's not the testimony. That's not the example we have from this man who's been freed in Christ. Everything about this man's life changes. Everything about what he does and what he's able to do changes because Christ has called him to salvation. Christ has called him into his family. We see that this man is healed into a vocation of proclaiming Christ and all that he's accomplished in the Decapolis, in the city. 
in a place where people gather. And look at the instruction that Jesus gives this man. Go home to your friends. You see, if Jesus says, go and tell people about what I've done for you, it's almost easier to share the gospel, to share what Christ has done in your life sometimes to people you don't know because they won't pry, because they don't know about your family, they don't know about your life. They don't have access to you in the same way. But when Jesus says, go and tell the people who know who you are about what I've done for you, about the Savior that I am to you, let what you proclaim about me cost you something. Let it show that you value me more than what the world has to offer. That might be the cost of a changed life and belonging to Christ. And that's a challenge for me and that's a challenge for you. That as you go into the workplace, whether it's remote on a Zoom call, whether it's a coffee with a vendor, whether it's a dinner with someone, whether it is a conference call or the way you construct a contract as you're making a bid or an offer to another company, whether you're working as a teacher and you're trying to instruct children, whatever it is, are you taking advantage of the opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel because of who Christ is? How marvelous it is. Look at the changed life of this man. He was unable to associate, unable to be in community, unable to converse with others, unable to have peace and rest. And Christ takes that which is chaotic and he brings it into order. And in doing so, he brings this man into a vocation of teaching others about himself. And we see the man at peace and sitting in his right mind and clothed. And for the first time, this man can have fellowship. But think about the temptation that would come with that. Do you think that for the first time, as this man is able to rejoin the community, able to sit at a dinner table with other people, able to enjoy being around his family again for the first time, that he might start to tuck away who Christ is so that way he can continue to enjoy that fellowship. Isn't it possible that that temptation might be there? And have you ever begun to shrunk back, even after belonging to Christ, thinking, well, I don't need to speak up that much. I don't need to share that much. I don't need to sacrifice that much. Look at the example here and think about what Christ has called you to do. This man has a whole pilgrimage ahead of him. He has a whole lifetime from the moment he's healed until the day that he dies to, require, to be required to be faithful to Christ. And he will stumble and he will fail. But ultimately, Christ will uphold him in the faith. And think about how that applies to your own life as well. We are allowed to fail, but we must repent and return to Christ knowing that which he has accomplished for us. And so, as we think about these last things in reflection, do you know your need of Christ? Have you reflected on it lately? Do you thank Christ for that which he's accomplished for you, which you could not accomplish for yourself? That is the song of joy of every Christian. And that's what we'll sing in remembrance as we sing our hymn of uh, dedication as we close today. And think here, do you desire nearness to Christ despite what it will cost you? Are you willing to pay a cost to be closer to Christ, to be faithful to your Savior who is perfectly faithful for your benefit? Is Christ sustaining you? Are you, since you've been saved, being sustained so God might get glory? Are you willing to suffer that Christ might receive glory? Are you willing to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done? And as we look here, will you praise him both publicly and privately? Will you in your devotion surrender your heart to him and also publicly give testimony to who Christ is so he might be adored and rejoiced and offered to others for accomplishing that which he really accomplished? Because Christ deserves nothing less. And though we fail to do this often, let us remember today 
So at least this week, we might be faithful in doing these things, which the Bible encourages us and exhorts us to do, but only in Christ and always in Christ. At this time, please bow and pray with me. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for this story recorded by Mark for our benefit. Lord, we pray that you would surrender our hearts to you, that you would draw us back to you, that you would reignite a desire in us to be near our Savior, to look forward to his physical coming at his second coming, but Lord, also that we would enjoy nearness to him in the Spirit, even today, nearness to him in the Word, nearness to him in fellowship of the saints as we worship you collectively together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to tell others about Christ because Christ is worthy to be praised publicly and privately. God, we pray that you would bless us that you would fill us with more of the Spirit, that you would lead us more in the Spirit, that you would help us to make sacrifices and to continue to be faithful and to live obedient lives so Christ might be honored as he should be honored. And Lord, we know that many in this congregation suffer from sicknesses, suffer from cancers, suffer from diagnoses that uh, aren't always shared with the whole congregation. Lord, we pray that those who are suffering, whether at work or socially or physically, that you would bless them and sustain them in your spirit and all the while bring yourself glory and all the while point others to you. And we pray that they would be glad in suffering for you in whatever way you appoint. But Lord, we do also pray that as you are willing, you would appoint physical healing. You would appoint social healing. You would appoint uh, and decree that many in this congregation would be healed so that they can do the other works that you have prepared for them to do, that you have called them to do. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name and trust them to you. Amen.